Hey, Mandy. Hey. Um, first off, I want to thank you very much for doing this uh, podcast with me, this conversation, because it's something that you're going through currently. Yeah. That is life altering. And some people want to share a message and other people don't want to talk about it at all. Right. So me and Mandy going back, we were technically cousins. Yep. But had you moved in with me and my mom and dad when, when you I were... Was 12, almost 13. 12, 13. And I was a young, young, young... <laughs> I don't even four. know. <laughs> four years old. And um, so we basically grew up like... Oh, I just texted you. What did you say? Got it to work. But th- this will work if it runs out of batteries. <laughs> You're good. So, so I mean, we were cousins, but we grew into a more deep relationship, like a brother and a sister. Yep. And then we also have another sister, Candace, as well. And we all had this kind of, kind of a tight knit relationship because yeah. we all kind of had trauma and things in our life and when it came down to it, it seemed like the only people we could really rely on solidly was the three of us. Was the three of us. (laughs) So, um, Mandy, how old are you for the listeners? I am 44. I'll be 45 in November. So she's, she's getting up there in age. (laughs) I'm still young. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you are. And, um, Mandy sent me this text message back in, when did you send me that message? My diagnosis? Yeah. In May. In May. So I remember waking up and I turned over and I opened up my phone and it said something to the effect of, hey, I want you to hear this from me and not anyone else. I've been diagnosed with cancer. Mm-hmm. And Mandy knows the type of person I am. I'm a health hypochondriac freak. <laughs> like I, just seeing how you've taken your diagnosis is awe striking to me because I'm doom and gloom. I go to the worst case scenario and I always think I have cancer myself every other month because I we know this. <laughs> <laughs> but so she sends me this message and I'm just I'm like kind of at loss for words. I'm like, what? You got what now? And it took me a minute to actually process it. Like I didn't want to believe it. It was mm-hmm. like, no, Mandy can't that happens to older women and right. they in their late fifties, sixties, she's only in her forties. And, and no, that can't be happening in my family life. Like what the hell? And, but it is happening. Mm-hmm. So my first question to you is how was that? Because I've sat in doctor's offices waiting for uh, results and things like that, or get calls on the phone and, my stomach always drops out like they're going to give me bad news. Right. And so far in my life, I have never received anything that's terrible. I've received bad news from doctors and good news, but I've never received the dreaded cancer. The life-altering diagnosis. Yeah, that so many of us, like that's where, you know, you get on WebMD, everyone diagnoses themselves with cancer, everyone thinks they've, that's that's like they don't want to ever hear that word when it's directed towards them. Mm-hmm. So where were you when you figured this out and how was it? So I kind of knew before um, I follow my gut a lot. I follow strong intuition a lot and I knew something was not right in my body. Um, 
unfortunately, I kept ignoring it because work was, we were at year end, work was way hectic. And so I was like, I'll deal with this after, I'll deal with this after. And, you know, um, talking to my family practice doctor, I wasn't supposed to have a mammogram until August. And I said, no, I need to have one sooner. I definitely think there's something going on. He was, he kept telling me he thought the lump was just fibrous because I do have fibrous dense tissue. And I forced him and said, no, my gut tells me other and I follow my gut. And so I made him give, you know, write out the diagnostic mammogram. Um, uh, when I went to the diagnostic mammogram uh, in April, I think, yeah, in April, you know, the radio, I could tell by the radiologist's reaction, she knew already what it was. So I said, just say it's cancer. And of course she wouldn't exactly say it's cancer, but she said, I think it is in all my work. I've seen this as cancer. So I knew, um, and how they diagnosed me was, well, the radiologist kind of confirmed my gut feeling, but then you have to do the biopsy. And I was at work and they called me and said, you need to get in right away. We need to, you know, address this because it's aggressive, triple negative breast cancer. So will you explain that to people that don't understand? Because I didn't understand what triple negative breast cancer was either. When I, when you told me it's triple negative breast cancer, I went, woohoo, because that sounds good. <laughs> you don't want positive breast cancer. You want negative. Yeah, yeah. And that's definitely how people think of it. Triple negative is very um, aggressive. It does not feed off hormones. So if you have a hormone receptor breast cancer, they know they can stop that hormone. Um, it's not as it doesn't have a reoccurrence rate like triple negative. Uh, triple negative is very aggressive. It's invasive. And so it's a little bit worrisome. The other thing that put the doctors on more high alert is my age. It's very rare for someone under 50 to end up with triple negative breast cancer. So they were a little more um, proactive, I guess, and wanting to immediately start chemo and start just immediately addressing everything that comes with triple negative breast cancer. Gotcha. And so I was like, I had no clue either. I thought breast cancer was breast cancer. I didn't know there was difference in um, location and, you know, I knew stages and stuff, but I didn't realize there's so many different types of breast cancer. So we had to do really quick education on what kind I had, what was going to happen. You know, there was still the concern with my age and, the reoccurrence of it. Um, but basically when I got the diagnosis, I just started going through, all right, you know, what's this going to do? I have a demanding career. I have a big family. I love to tend to and care for and realized I had to step back from all of it and care for myself. And so that's why I sent the text out cause I couldn't verbally say it yet. I wasn't, um, ready to say it yet, but I didn't want anyone finding out secondhand, especially all those close with me. Mm -hmm. And the news was starting to spread. And so I sent a text to all my loved ones because I couldn't do the phone call. Yeah. And so that's why everyone got that text. <laughs> you, Candace, uh, you know, the only ones that did were my kids because I had to verbally tell them. Yeah. And I, I don't blame you. There's people communicate in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, whether it was a phone call or a text, I'm just glad you let me know. Yeah. Um, but who was the first person that you let know besides yourself? I mean, well, Dustin, because uh, when I left the radiology, when I left the diagnostic mammogram, and that's where they do a 3D mammogram, then an ultrasound mammogram, 
she sent me up to Huntsman that very day. But she said, call your care person. I was like, my who? And she's like, well, who would care for you if you were ill? I'm like, well, my husband. Okay, well, he call him. He needs to get off work, and he needs to take you straight up to Huntsman. You have to have a biopsy today. Oh, wow. And so I called him crying because I already knew. And he said, you don't know yet. The biopsy's not done. And so I let him, you know, convince me that I didn't already know my diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And we drove up to Huntsman and got the biopsy done. And within three days, I had a diagnosis. Of the triple negative ductal ductal carcinoma and loop and uh, tubular carcinoma. And what stage is it? It's stage three. Stage three. So that's that's one of the later stages. And I think that's another thing that hit me pretty hard when you told me because you you'd confirmed that you had cancer. But at the time that you told me, you didn't tell me what stage because I don't think you knew either. No, we didn't know. Yeah. To come back. So to hear that you're. Um, you're not stage one, you're not stage two, but that you're stage three, which is, in my knowledge of that, isn't that local tissue and spread to like lymph nodes or something? Or Or size. And mine is over five centimeters. Gotcha. So um, with my size, it automatically hit it to a stage three. Okay. Well, luckily, you're not a stage four, which, because stage four is almost... Stage four, it's metastasized to other areas. Other organ areas and very hard to fight, but we're at stage three. How does that make you feel when you hear stage three? I don't think about it in stages just because I think then that just creates more power for the cancer. So I just think of it as an illness that I have to fight and, you know, um, go through. I mean, I'm glad I don't have a stage four or stage five because I do know people that have recently, you know, been diagnosed with stage four and five. So I'm glad I don't have to think about, you know, stage four or five. But at the same time, I'm not. Um, I'm not focusing on the stage. I'm just focusing focusing on, you know, OK, this is what I have and this is what I need to do to. And that that right there just explains the differences between us, because <laughs> I would be on the stage like, no, it's stage three. And I would look up survival rate and I would just be like, I'm fucked. Yeah, no, I, I won't do that. In fact, I don't Google my symptoms. I don't do anything. I trust my doctors because I did at first start like Googling what triple negative was and discovered mm-hmm. You can go down rabbit holes. It can create a lot of anxiety that is unnecessary, stress that's unnecessary. You literally have to trust in your team of doctors. And then I did, you know, find a couple of good books, one by Olivia Newton-John, where I'm able to, you know, kind of read into things more and understand my diagnosis and triple negative and, um, you know, how it differs so much. Because when you Google triple negative, it's always doom. Yeah. And so, you know, my kids were Googling it, especially Paige, and she was kind of freaking herself out a little bit. So I've just told her, stop it. Let's not do that. Let's trust, you know, the Huntsman Cancer Institute and the doctors there to put me on the right path for, you know, remission. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that is one thing that I can say that you're probably blessed in that you received this diagnosis in the state of Utah because other parts of the country don't have the healthcare system that they do here. We have the University of Utah, the Huntsman Cancer Institute, things like that. So you, 
you trust in your team. I know some people don't trust doctors and they go for second, third opinions, but your team's been pretty good working with you. Yeah, we even got a second opinion to see if it would change. And the second opinion had no relation with Huntsman, so I knew they couldn't look up my health stuff and, you know, kind of give me the same prognosis. Mm -hmm. But with the second opinion, it was kind of the same, you know, what they would suggest for the same regimen and the same procedures. So I felt better with that. And the doctors at Huntsman, they meet together, you know, um, once a week for just me and kind of go through my team of doctors and kind of go through where I'm at, you know, if I'm having complications, um, surgery plans, things like that. So that makes me feel better, too, that they're all coordinating together. Because you don't just have one doctor. No, you yeah, have I have multiple. multiple. So you must have like a, I don't know what they call it, cancer doctor. Is that oncologist. Oncologist. So I have an oncologist. Then I have a, a surgeon for the mastectomy. And then I'll have a reconstruction surgeon. And then I have a kidney doctor that's working with them just to make sure the chemos, you know, because I've had kidney problems my whole life mm-hmm. and chemo's just kind of complicating that. And then I have a liver doctor because the chemo is also affecting my liver, but they all work together to make sure one regimen isn't going to mess up, you know, something else. So they all communicate, which is essential for your care. Yeah. And I, I don't think people understand chemo is like, from my understanding, it's poison pretty much. You're poisoning yeah. your body. Yep. And you are on a, due to your diagnosis, you're on a very strong chemotherapy. Yep. I'm on, I'm only the sixth person in the state of Utah to do this regimen for triple negative cancer. But um, Stanford and UCLA have been practicing this regimen for a year now for triple negative. And so they've had high success. And I'm the sixth person to, in Utah now to do this regimen. Um, it was 12 weeks of three different types of two different types of chemo and then Keytruda, which is a bone marrow growth because your bone marrow dies with chemo. Mm -hmm. And so I'm on that. And then I start what they call the red devil next week with another chemo, which will be to hopefully shrink the rest and knock the rest out and get rid of any residual um, cancer that has spread. So, um, you have your chemotherapy and your bone marrow treatments that you're going through and you do this how many times a week? I do it once a week right now. And then with red devil, I'll do it every other week, every other week. Now, um, when you first went to your first chemo session, how was that? It was scary. That definitely kind of, I don't want to say got me down, but shocked me because I was the youngest person walking in there. And I looked around and realized these are, you know, 60, 70, 80 year olds. And here I am. And so that kind of gives you a little bit of a, like, why am I here? Why me? And then our sweet grandmother says, why not you? What makes you any different than anyone else? (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's very true. Do you talk to any of those people in the chemo sessions Um, or communicate or no? Sometimes if they're, you know, if they're wanting to talk, I'll talk with them. I've not found the elderly, the elderly, elderly, older people want to talk. They, I feel are more in a depressed state. Mm-hmm. Um, it's ironically been young, young people, a lot younger than me who've wanted to talk. One of the talks that kind of, I was not in a great mood one time. And my friend Casey was with me at the key with my chemo. And I was just trying to, you know, 
put that positive face on and but inside I was just like I hate this this is here comes the sickness again here we go again and so I was kind of in a gray area and a mood that wasn't helping and this girl across from me was like oh you're gonna be because they sit you in sections and so they're like you're gonna sit in section four and I was like okay and they say you can choose the front seat or the back seat because it's like little small square areas that you get treated and there's a you know a recliner and then a chair for your visitor and she was like sit across from me and so we sat across from her I immediately recognized she was younger but I didn't know you know because they do more than just chemotherapy in the um, infusions uh-huh. but I didn't know what she had but I did notice she did have a, a hat on so I was kind of already leaning she must have had some kind of cancer and she immediately came over and said what are you in here for which kind of shocked me that she was just so open open and like well what's your problem and so I started laughing and said 25 years to life <laughs> and she laughed and she goes oh yeah me too she goes but really what are you here for and I says breast cancer and she goes oh what kind and I says triple negative and she went oh I'm sorry and I was like oh thanks so I'm like well what about you and she's like oh I have stage four stomach cancer oh really and I said how old are you and she said 24 and my light, like immediately I felt regret that I had started my day off feeling sorry for myself because here was this 24 year old girl who had stage four stomach cancer and was talking about remodeling her house with her husband and, you know, making all these plans and knowing her prognosis probably wasn't going to be a long one. Yeah. And so I immediately at that point was like, okay, get over yourself. There is people who are dealing with far worse cancers at younger ages than you. And I always think about her if I'm getting to the point where I'm just done with it. I always think if she can do it and be as happy as she was and, you know, intruding as she was trying to make other people feel better, then I can be. And she obviously wasn't from here because they were staying in a hotel while she was getting her treatments. And I can't imagine how uncomfortable that would be because right after chemo, the first thing you want to do is go home and crawl in your bed. Yeah, it makes you feel super sick, right? Yeah, super sick, super tired, just worn out. Part of it is they give you a lot of anti-nausea drugs and those always have the tiredness side effects Mm -hmm. while you're getting it. And um, in some cases, you get a lot of Benadryl because of allergic reactions. And so... my initial thing after chemo's done is get me home. I just want to get either comfortable on my couch or comfortable in my bed. So seeing people who have come from Wyoming, Montana, you know, to have these treatments and then have to go back to a Hilton or something, I always think how horrible. That's the last place I'd want to go is to a hotel. Yeah, you you also see a lot of people just staying in their trailers in hospital parking lots. I see that at that IMC on State Street all the time, but there's just like motorhomes there and yeah I'm like why are they oh they're probably there because they have to be yeah yeah University of Utah has and Huntsman have um contracts with some of the hotels downtown Mm -hmm. so they're able to accommodate them better and the hotels also understand the protocol for cleaning and stuff because I did find that out because of the growth with Huntsman and University of Utah they've kind of lost the ability to bring trailers oh gotcha and so um one of the oncologist nurse was telling me that they have these contracts where staying at somewhere like that, it's fairly cheap for them. Mm-hmm. They get like a major discount and they reserve certain rooms for patients, you know, that have the extra sanitizing and things going on. So that makes, so 
I was like, oh, okay. But still, even crawling into a hotel or even my trailer, I would not want to right after chemo. There's another drug that you're on, another treatment that you go get in your in your port, right? The ports where they... The ports where they administer all my drugs. All your drugs. And pull blood from so that my veins... Because if they... From how they explained it, if you were getting chemo through your veins, your veins would be toast by the end. Kind of like a drug addict with like a heroin, how yeah. they collapse and yep. everything because you're using the same vein yeah. so many times. And um, your vein can't handle that kind of, the chemotherapy like that. So with the port, it goes straight through, uh, it's connected straight into your main artery to your heart. And it goes in there and pumps through your blood. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, you get another treatment through there, the... Um, it starts with a K. Hey, Truda. That one. Talk about that one because you, I always thought chemo would be the worst, but according to you, this one is. K. Truda causes bone pain mm. and bone pain is the most excruciating thing I've ever felt. I would take the nausea, the vomiting with chemo any day compared to the bone pain. What's it feel like? Just your bones are on fire? It feels like your bone, like... <laughs> If you remember as a kid getting growing pains Mm -hmm. and your mom saying, oh, they're growing pains. So it's kind of like that, but increase it by, you know, 100 percent. It's to the point where it just stops me dead in my tracks and you can't get comfortable. You everything you do just doesn't work. Um, The only thing I found that somewhat helps is like the hot tubs um, or uh, I was taking six showers, hot, hot showers a day just to release the bone pain. Um, the doctors don't know why the heat helps, but they've found that it does help. But the bone pain has been my worst side effect with it all. Yeah, I can't imagine. I remember, oh, I was like 23, 24, and I injured my back. I think you were the one that took me to one of my... I think so. In, yeah, <laughs> yeah, one of my spinal, uh, yeah. whatever they call where they put the medicine in your spine yeah, with a big the needle injection. I'd have people drive me because I couldn't do it without Valium. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's yes, how, I remember that. I, get, I terrified at doctor's <laughs> offices and stuff. Even on like routine visits or even vets, I'm like, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so like, and that was excruciating where I would also do the same thing. I'd wake up like three times a night and just jump in the shower. And so I can't even imagine um, what that does to you and what, what you're going through with that. Um, you know, I've known a few people because in my job, I'm working for a <clears throat> school district transportation department where we have a lot of retired um, individuals, um, women and men. So I get right. to hear a lot of their life stories and things of that nature and from breast cancer to all sorts of things that they've had ailments in their lives. Um so I, I like talking to them and figuring out how they kept their positive mindset through all this. How have you kept your positive mindset? What's the what's holding you? Because I really haven't seen you in a negative aspect at all. And I mean, I know everyone kind of may put on a face for other people when they're around. And then when other people aren't around, they right. could, you could get negative. But you've been just upbeat and I can't even like looking at you besides you being bald. I wouldn't know you had cancer. Yeah. I've always been an optimistic, positive person. It's just been my nature. Um, I guess I, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's been times where I've broken down and been like, this is shit. And I, you know, I'm over this, but 
at the same time, I think, you know, this is just the path I got to take now. And, you know, here we go. Hold on tight. Um, I just try to find, I do a gratitude journal and I journal a lot. So that helps too, because even though I'm going through this, I still have, you know, multitude of blessings. I always tell people I feel bad because I have so many blessings. Um, I have a family and friends that I call my tribe that just have been 110% supportive. I can call any one of you, Lacey and Candace, anyone and know they'll be there. Um, everyone's always uplifting, you know, are you doing okay? What can we help with? My employer has been amazing. Um, I've just, you know, I have Dustin who no matter what, he'll do whatever I need and be comfortable. The two kid, you know, the kids. So I think that helps someone who's going through it alone. I couldn't imagine because you could fall into a dark place quickly. Um, if you don't have things around you to remind you what you're living for, that would be difficult. Yeah. And so I just tend to, and now more than ever, I surround myself with those people. And I've kind of found with this diagnosis, I've tend to not distance myself, but lose touch with those people who would bring in the negative. Anyone who talks to me, I'm always open about my, you know, my diagnosis and where I'm going through with anyone who asks me questions. But if they start getting into the darker stuff or the negative stuff, then I start questioning what their motive is. Motive is, or, you know, why would they bring that to someone who's going through this? And so I kind of distance myself from them and I've noticed I've done it. And, um, honestly, it's helped keep my life, you know, a little more positive and optimistic. Um, I'm not also blind that, you know, there is complications and, um, the reoccurrence rate for triple negative is higher and, um, making it the five year is a lot higher is a lot like you have to fight to make it that five year. I'm not dumb to that and I'm not naive, but I've also learned in my life going through whatever I went through throughout life, just looking through that, the brighter side of things is easier um, I'm a true believer that part of the healing and part of allowing your body to heal is giving it the positive outlook. It just helps. You're If you're always doom and gloom, then the stress level comes up. And um, they've done tons of studies where stress is horrible for cancer. And so I just try to keep a positive outlook just so I feel better. Do you ever have the concept of death creep into your mind? I do. And I'm not afraid of death and I'm comfortable. You know, I'm, if I had to go tomorrow, um, I'd be comfortable with it, but I don't want to. I feel like, you know, I'd miss, I'm the fear of missing out. (laughs) I'm like, I haven't seen my daughter get married yet. You know, the grandbaby growing up, things like that. So that would make that makes me sad if I'm like, oh, I'd miss out on so much. But, you know, if my body just can't take it or something, or if they just told me, you know, it's too far gone, I feel like I would accept it pretty well. And then I'd be like, hey, we're doing my bucket list stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, at first when I was diagnosed, I was so afraid, like so afraid of, well, what if, what if I die? And 
I was more afraid of leaving the people behind than actually dying. And then I had to make, um, you know, make myself realize that everyone will be okay. I've raised great kids, you know, everyone would be okay. And then it was, I'd miss out on a lot. And so I don't go down that road, but if I do, then I just remind myself, you know, I, you know, everyone will be okay. Everyone will take care of each other. I've made sure, you know, that my kids know to take care of each other and their dad and, you know, you and Candace just still getting together, doing family things and stuff. And so I don't dwell on it, but when it has creeped into my mind, I just remind myself, you know, what a great support system they've been for me and how they'd be for each other. No, that's awesome because it seems like, it seems like obviously if you're diagnosed with cancer in any stage, death is going to creep into your mind, but it's the, to me, what I get from you is getting off that track and getting on a different one. That way you're not dwelling on it because like you said, the negative aspects that come along with that and what's it, what's worrying about it going to do for you? Right. It's not going to do shit. It's not going to do anything. And they do talk to you about, you know, death when you get diagnosed with cancer and reoccurrence rates and your probability of beating it. And, you know, it does come up. And I do think you do have to deal with that as an individual and you have to face it. And if you're afraid of death, you have to figure out how not to be afraid of it so you don't dwell on it. And I think because I'm not afraid of death, I don't dwell on it now. Are you not afraid of death because you do you have like a renewed spiritual belief or anything with this or well, something? That's... I've always been a spiritual person. Um, I have, you know, I always believe in multiple different higher entities. Uh-huh. Um, I've always been close with earth, but I've always had a, you know, I always feel like there's a higher power. And so I think that's helped me a little bit, but I think also what helped was, um, I feel like I'm a, old soul. I feel like I've lived on this earth before, like something resents in me that just tells me I've been here, done that. And so I think that kind of calmed me too. And then just going back through journals or reading things. And then I realized, you know, damn, I've done a lot in this life and I've done this and this, and the gratitude comes back on, you know, I'm very grateful for the life I've lived and what I've been able to accomplish and see where some people can live their whole life and not even have, you know, half of the gratitude or half the blessings I've had. Yeah. It kind of brings it back to oddly enough, we were talking about that 24 year old with the stage four stomach cancer. Right. You have 20 years of experience on her. And then you think about, oh man, what kind of how she's getting robbed a little bit. Yeah. She's barely living. Yeah. And, and we always want more time, but you got to really, I think personally, take a look at how much you have done with your time. And, and, and then, I mean, I guess it just goes back to that golden rule of, you know, live like live life every day. Like it's your last because it could be, or some life changing event like you're going through can sneak into any of our lives in the blink of an eye. Yeah. Whether it be a diagnosis or you walk out. I mean, one of the things that drives me crazy is when people like, will leave families in fights or something like that or get frustrated and then they go right to their car. Mm -hmm. Driving your car is one of the most dangerous things you can do any day and to leave someone in a negative sense, like a family member or something like that. I've been trying not to do that and trying to appreciate the life 
that I have. Like, I think that's one thing that's woken me up a little bit with your diagnosis is like, man, you got to be grateful for everything you have and you need to live life to the fullest. Mm -hmm. And it seems you've always kind of lived your life like that. You've always put in 110% with everything you've done. You're one thing. You're a stubborn woman. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little. (laughs) Very business orientated. Very, I mean, and I'd say that in like a very joking way, but Mandy's really brought herself up from uh, education and into companies. And she's, I remember when you were with your past company and you kind of just said, well, screw you guys, you know, and you went on to another one because you knew your worth. And this company you're working for now sounds amazing, what they're doing for you. Um. You know, has it made you look at life any differently being diagnosed with stage three cancer or are you just kind of living like you have been? I mean, it has. Um, I was a workaholic. Um, I definitely put a lot of time and passion into my work. I loved what I did. And I also I think I'm a person who's loyal to people. And my boss is one of the best people to work for. And so I was very loyal, you know, to her and the company and I wanted to see them succeed. We went through the COVID transition with, you know, um, personnel and short personnel and then trying to find the right person and working in the insurance industry. It's not easy. Um, It's not everyone has those skill sets. So it's really hard to find them in this or you have to find, you know, being in that I'm an accountant. You have to find those great accountants who can transition quickly into the insurance and um, statutory accounting. Mm -hmm. And so we were working some, especially this last year, and some ridiculous hours, 17 hours a day, you know, seven days a week. So one thing, this diagnosis, when I got it, I was thinking about all that, you know, and my work pays me very well and they reward very well for, you know, for good, good work and success. And so I've never felt under, um, underappreciated, underappreciated or or anything like that. I've always known, and they tell you a lot too, you know, how much they appreciate you, but that money rewards and, you know, telling you only go so far. You also have a life outside of work. And, um, when we were driving home from the biopsy, I remember thinking in my head, okay, God, I got it. This is the smack I needed to tell me to focus on myself and, you know, family and slow down on work. Work will be okay. And I will say when I gave, you know, my company, well, I told my boss directly because outside of us just being a boss and employee, we're friends. Okay. And so I told her and she immediately started going into, okay, you're going to stop work at this date. You're going to focus just on you. How do we get everything off your desk? And we started figuring out, you know, how to disperse my, work so that I could focus on me and my health and getting better. And so it made me take a step back. In fact, I was just talking to her today and she said, we will never work like that again because I did, you know, if I would have maybe went in sooner, um, it would have been a stage two, but you know, hindsight, but at the same time, I looked at it as the universe telling me to change my focus. That's, that's, that's good. That's what I'm trying to do currently in my life because I'm, I'm the same way. I give 110% to everything I do and I get really passionate about it. And then you get wrapped up in work and you forget about 
the home life. Yeah, and you sacrifice. You sacrifice what you love to do. I love to craft, and I couldn't remember the last time I had craft. You sacrifice your own um, loves and, you know, for a company or, a, you know, whatever, and you get so wrapped up into it when you're that driven that you kind of let yourself go. Yeah, um, I had noticed, so... I had to put my cat down of 21 years and I got really envious of uh, Lacey because I remember the, when we finally made the decision to put him down, I was like, but he looks fine. He looks fine. Yeah. But I had just, I hadn't seen the decline in him because I had been work, home, eat, sleep, work, home, eat, sleep. And I'm like, I remember that last week with him. Like I, I took work off, like, and some people, oh, it's just a stupid cat. Well, to me, I had him for 21 years. It's felt like the death of a, a companion, family member. family yeah. member. Yeah, because they are. And I remember I called you, after, <laughs> like right after your diagnosis, and I'm bawling, like, what do I do? Who did you use for your dog? Yeah. And you just answered and, like, dealt with me. That's, that's, I mean, hats off to you. I mean, here you're dealing with your health issues and still helping my whiny ass. <laughs> well, we had just put... A couple dogs down too. Yeah, so we lost a lot of pets and through COVID and then through this last year. So I understood why you were calling me, but <laughs> but yeah, and it just it, it goes to show that you need to um, a work life balance is so important. I hate that saying though. Why is that? Because it sounds like you have to give one for the other. Okay. And I feel like more of you can be a great employee and still clock out for vacation and still you know one of the biggest problems was I'd still go on vacation take my laptop that will never happen again um so I don't like the work-life balance thing because I feel like then it sounds like you're sacrificing one for the other I just call it knowing you know when to draw the line in the sand and say and you have to have an employer that's going to allow you to do that and you have to trust your employer to say hey I'm not taking my laptop on vacation I'm not answering calls after, you know, this time. Sometimes our careers are, you know, we get the employer that you talked about that I told him to stick it. You know, I thought I had to sacrifice everything to show them I was such a great um, employee. And then coming to this job, I realized they needed the help and I could do it. And so I kept taking on more and saying yes when I realized I needed to be saying, I can't take on any more until you guys take more from me. Yeah. Um, so there's, I think it's more of just not a work-life balance, but just a knowing when to give and when not to give. Gotcha. On both sides, even in your home life, you know, sometimes I get wrapped up in taking care of everyone else and then I don't have any time for me. And so you have to put yourself as one of the important people too to take care of. Uh, and that's been a little bit hard for me because I'm, I, I like to take care of people. I like to be the person that is, you know, checking on the kids, checking on the grandbaby, dusting, whatnot. And I've had to allow them now to take care of me. And that's been a very hard lesson to be the patient and not the caretaker. Oh, I bet. That's that's kind of how I am in my life as well. Um, I don't like people taking care of me. Yeah. I like <laughs> taking care of others. So I, I can totally understand that. Um, another thing I kind of wanted to talk with you about is you go into a supermarket. You go anywhere. 
and people just they know when the sick are around them the alien and the dying and everything of that nature and you try not to look you try not to look at the guy that's a double amputee or that has those cool i think they're actually cool claws as oh, hands yeah. i seen one the <laughs> other day and i'm like don't look marcus that's mean um but do you ever when you walk out into public somewhere, do you notice people's eyes peering over you or do you feel uncomfortable? Yeah. And because, you know, I still wear a mask because there is still even a common cold. It took me four weeks to get rid of a common cold. Well, and you've just battled COVID as well. Yeah, And I just battled COVID. So I still wear a mask. I don't expect anyone else. It's my responsibility to protect me. Mm -hmm. And then of course I probably have a bald cap on or I'm walking through the store bald because honestly I don't give a shit. Yeah. And so you do fill the eyes. Um, and sometimes I just meet them and, you know, make eye contact with them and smile. Um, I hate the sorrow look. Oh. And that's what I get. And so that just bugs me majorly is the sorrow look because I don't want anyone feeling sorry for me. Um, you know, if I could tell people, you know, hey, I've had an amazing life. I've had a great life. I've done things I didn't even think I could do. And I've traveled, I've seen so much, I've not traveled enough, but I've still done a lot more than most. So I do feel that. So I kind of avoid going out in public for the social part of it, of the sorrowed looks or the curious looks. And then also just, you know, I don't want to catch anything because everyone is still dealing with a lot. So I avoid going into public for that. But for the most part, if I have to run into a gas station or something, I just kind of avoid when I can feel us being stared, I just avoid, you know, making eye contact with that person. So for the most part, that's been where I just avoid going. Going out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) More of a homebody. I'm more of a homebody. Do a lot of Instacart because, yeah, I don't, I'm not comfortable. I've never been comfortable with people staring at me. And so it's just awkward. Well, and that's awesome that the world we live in is so much more adapted to being able to stay home. So you don't, you're not forced to go out there. It's not like, I I can't even imagine being sick in the eighties or the seventies or the sixties with the technology and the things back then. Right. Um, It's just leaps and bounds different um, from what it was. Um, I was going to ask you something and I just forgot. (laughs) (laughs) Um. So, yeah, so, I mean, you deal with the little looks, but you you primarily stay home. And has that kind of made you, it obviously has made you a little, I don't want to use the word cabin fever, but like stir crazy, because oh, now yeah. you go up to... Uh, to our property. Property. Yeah, I go stir crazy. Um, I do, you know, I'm lucky enough where when my company needs me to jump on and help them with stuff, I can do it from home. Um, because of COVID, I'm already set up to work from home. And so I'm able to jump on and help them when needed, but it's still not enough. Like, at least when I was working through COVID, I was working full, you know, 12 hour days yeah. from my home. And when I signed off, it was nice just to get out of my office and go back into the rest of the house. But now with this, I'm throughout the whole house and I go, I get bored quick. And I was finding I was going a lot, I was stir crazy. I needed to get out. And so, we got a smaller trailer and go up to the property now on the weekends just to give me 
a change of scenery. Do you feel that the being out in the nature is almost healing in a sense? It is, and especially that area because it's right by Tabiona, uh-huh. where we've spent many, many childhood memories. Oh, yeah, summer after summers. summer after summer. So it's kind of the same environment. So it kind of brings me, you know, back to that. Um, it's kind of got the same the same feel. landscape and yeah. feel. So it helps me, like, with our grandpa, you know, and I always say he's my guardian angel. Um, so I feel closer to him there, and that helps too. And then just different scenery. Then I also feel like Dustin's not stuck at home with me. With he's able to kind of enjoy the outdoors like he loves. He still hasn't lost his uh, <laughs> his 12, 13-year-old personality when he gets behind the wheel of some sort of vehicle. Oh, I know. <laughs> of the buggy, unless I'm sitting next to him. Yeah. yeah Screaming still, at him. Yeah, he still wants to go balls to the wall the minute he jumps in those buggies. I know. And, yeah, so then I don't, because I have a lot of guilt. I feel bad for him, you know, like... He's just not the, he's Mr. Social mm-hmm. and we've not been able to participate in a lot of social things because I can't, I don't want to be around a lot of people. Yeah. And so him going up there with his brother being up there and his mom being up there, he's, you know, able to be social. Him and his brother will get up real early and go fishing or, you know, scouting or whatever. So he's still able to do things. And then that makes me feel less guilty. Well, and I think it's always important to realize, um, and I always I always uh, think about this um, is there's you're suffering from the disease, but there's always the caretaker is suffering as well because they're right there. They might not be suffering the ailments and the side effects of the medications, but they have to, it's very hard to watch someone you love so dear go through that pain, that agony and know that you can't take that from them, but you got to be there to support them. So it's, I, what you're saying by getting up there and letting him get out and experience what he enjoys. I think that's very important for your caretaker as well. It is. And you have to remember caretaker, especially Dustin, he's a fixer. Mm-hmm. He can't fix this. Oh yeah. And when I'm sick and I'm crying because of the bone pain, he feels completely helpless and that's a lot to take on. And so I always have to try to remember that. And I think, guess that's maybe why I don't complain as much because the minute I start complaining he's trying to fix it he'll try to fix it with food a back rub you know and sometimes he just can't fix it and I just need to lay there and let it run its episode but I see the concern in his face and that hurts you know that hurts me because I know he's probably got a lot of worry going on and a lot of concern and he just doesn't want to voice it with me because he feels like you know she's got enough going on right now and so sometimes, you know, it's funny because we always laugh because we don't have a lot of marital spats. Mm-hmm. We've been married too long now where marital spats are gone. But sometimes he's like, you're being a jerk to me. And I don't realize it, but I'm just frustrated and upset. And, you know, I'm like short with him and I don't mean to be. And then I'll be like, I'm sorry, I just don't feel good today. And so we've learned to communicate a little bit more. If I'm just like, I'm just having a bad day and I just need to work through it. I'm in a lot of pain so that he doesn't feel like I'm ignoring him or, you know, not taking what he's trying to do for me. Yeah, I think communication is key in any relationship, especially with uh, something going on like this. Yeah, it is. And you have to, you know, I've explained to him because when the bone pain happens, I try to go into a meditation state. um, And... So I just try to lay there as still as I can and just meditate to try to 
you know, wait until meds kick in so that I can feel better. And I finally had to tell him, if I'm not answering you and I'm just laying there, it's because I'm in a lot of pain. I'm holding really still so that I can work through it. And him understanding that now has helped because then he's not feeling bad because I'm not responding to him or, you know, I snap at him, just leave me alone. So that has, that helps. But going up the property has really helped even me, even getting bone pain up there. It's, it's excruciating, but I open the windows in the trailer and I'm able to get that, you know, mountain air and it's been raining a lot up there. And to me, that is one of the most peaceful things. Like if I could fall asleep to rain on a tin roof every night, it would be a dream of mine. I have the sound sleep. It's still not the same. <laughs> yeah, It's not, but the smell of the, if they could create something that created the smell of the rain and the dampness feeling of it, and then just the sound, Oh, it would I agree. Be amazing. There's nothing better than waking up early morning to like fresh rain. That yep. smell, the general like peace and calm it brings, yeah. especially in the wilderness. Yep, the quietness it brings. Now, oddly enough, you are not going through this struggle alone on the friend front either because you have a friend that got diagnosed with a very similar cancer right Vaccine. around the same time. Yeah, my sweet little bestie since we were 17. Um yeah, she got diagnosed a month ago, a month ago, um, triple negative breast cancer. She's six months younger than me on her left breast. So the asshole she is started telling people when she hugged me, I gave it to her. <laughs> <laughs> but we find laugh. We laugh about it. We, Her and I have this saying that we're not going to cry over cancer because that's just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know. Uh, she was over here the other day after her first chemo treatment and she was struggling a little bit and we, I started making jokes and we were started laughing about us being bald and she's always had long, beautiful blonde hair. Mm -hmm. And she was, and I was like, we'll just paint boobs on the top of our head. And she's like, let's do it. And let's have Marcus do pictures. <laughs> <laughs> so we're planning this photo shoot when she's bald too, you know, um, just to make light of it. She's like me. She doesn't want to focus on the, you know, the negative side or the demise side, we want to focus on just, you know, laughing through this and get through it. And then I told her, my God. And then when we get through it and we're in our sixties and seventies, we can be like, screw you guys. You know what we went through? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, in this whole, um, predicament you find yourself in, I've always been the doom and gloom person and the worry or worry war. I'll tell you, I haven't worried about you at all. I've had this sense of everything is going to be okay. I, I don't have the gloom feeling either. Um, once I made peace, ironically, with like, if I die, it'll happen, you know. I lost that doom and gloom feeling. And then it kind of made me like then focus on, okay, you know, let's now focus on getting through this and then planning the life after this. Yeah. And I know for sure mine and Dustin's life after this will be a little bit slower. I won't be working the corporate high-rise New York job, traveling like I was traveling with my company. Um, I want to focus more on me and Dustin traveling, you know, enjoying. We're getting, especially Dustin, is getting closer to retirement, planning that out, you know, planning out what our future is going to be and what that looks like. And so that's helped. Um with the 
with knowing just to fight, keep fighting. Because, you know, one thing I've always wanted to do is do a long trip in Ireland. And that is now more pressing to me than ever because I realized, holy shit, I could, I could have died and not even seen Ireland. What the heck? I want to go to my homeland. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think there's a uh, saying that envision yourself where you want to be and envision it deeply and you will be there. Yeah. And I'm a true believer in vision boards. And so I have a digital vision board and I decided I was going to change it into the old school vision board because I feel like that's more. um, What is a vision board? So a vision board is what you put up. You can do a five year vision board, 10 year lifelong vision board. Um, I start small and do like a year vision board Mm -hmm. and you put up things, magazine clippings, um, affirmations, positive words, things you want to make goals on. And if you have a vision board that you visually look at every day, you can manifest those things. And I'm a true believer in that. Um, I started vision boards when I started college because I thought there was no way I would get through college. Two teenagers, already a hectic job family you know there was a lot of demands on me and I started a vision board and every time I put things on that vision board we would achieve them oh that's awesome I've never even heard of one of those yeah and you can put even like cars on your vision boards you know I try not to do materialistic things Mm -hmm. um I guess the most materialistic things I do is travel yeah um one of my biggest ones was taking the family to Disney World that was always been a big thing for me Dustin and I you know starting out could never afford Disney World Um, And this year, I put it on my vision board two years ago, and in March of this year, we were able to do it with the family. Wow, right before your diagnosis. Yep. So you accomplished it. That's cool. We accomplished it, yep. That's awesome. I wouldn't do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you guys, because we watched your dogs while you guys were in Florida. (laughs) Hannah turned into a little bit of a... A chaos. Yeah. Yeah, Disney World is good to do once in your lifetime and then never do it again. (laughs) Um. Last question for you, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, because it could be kind of a doom and gloom question, but I try and look at it as a positive one because I think not enough people let people know. But if you're gone, if if you don't beat this cancer, which I have not a doubt in my mind that this is going to happen because right. I think you're going to beat it. And I, I'm, I'm like you. I trust my gut and trust my intuition. And like I said, when I got that text from you, I was like, fuck, she'll, she's got this. Like, yeah. wasn't worried at all. But if, if you were to pass away, what, what message would you leave for your family? It'd be different for each different person because, you know, and I thought about that a little bit and it's funny because one of the books they give you when you get diagnosed with cancer is like making letters for your family. I haven't gone that far because I would never want my kids to find a goodbye letter. (laughs) But I think it'd be different for different people just because there's not just one message you could give. You know, each person has a little bit of a different thing. But the one thing I would say to everyone is no matter what, put stupid spats or stupid disagreements aside. My Lord, they're, you know, if they ain't going to make a difference in five years, let it go let it go and get beyond it. We've watched too many family members miss out on a lot of things because they can't get past a spat. And to me, I'm just like, it's just so stupid. Let it go. Don't miss out on things. Um, You know, try to spend time with each other. Life is hectic. I know that I get that, 
And with my kids, I try to push it. You know, family is still family. We still need to spend time together. It doesn't have to be every day, every week, but once a month, you know, get together, reunite, remember why, you know, we're family. And I think now in today's world, especially, that's harder to do. You have so much division, political, whatever, that you're finding a lot of families are are separating because over what? Yeah. Over some guy that made a comment that you're never going to talk about. Yeah. And so I tend to be like, if it's not, if someone offended you, I have no problems, you know, pointing out, hey, that pissed me off. You, that was offensive. That's good rhetoric. That's good communication. But holding it in and walking away and then not talking to them, that's not okay. Um, you know, and if you do have family that's toxic, then make peace with that and be okay with that too. Be okay with not talking to them, but don't hold, hold resentment. Because that doesn't hurt you. That hurts our, That hurts yourself. Yeah. Well, hey, thank you very much for doing this. Um, thank you. Thanks for being open and honest and just being willing to share this. Um, any last message for anyone that might be going through this diagnosis that might be hearing that cancer word for their first time ever and feeling like the world just fell out from underneath them? Um, lean on people. If you're afraid... Be open and honest and tell them you're afraid. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be mad. I've went through every emotion. I'm not all sunshine and rainbows. Mm-hmm. Um, just work through the emotions. And then the other thing is follow your gut. And if you haven't had a mammogram and you are 40, get a mammogram. The sooner they catch it, the better your prognosis is. Um, and, you know, we tend to get too busy in life where we don't take care of ourselves and these tests are here these um, pre-screenings are here for us and honestly if everyone would do what we're supposed to do with our pre-screenings I've talked to quite a few oncologists who have told me they wouldn't have jobs Wow. so society needs to you know take better care of ourselves and do the pre-screenings and stuff and it was interesting and now I'm going to go off on a slight tangent I've noticed Europeans still smoke up a a storm still to this day. And so I have a doctor who is from the UK and I said, how come Europeans still smoke up a storm and they don't have higher cancer, higher cancer rates? Like you would think they would have the highest, you know, um, chest or lung cancer rate because Mm -hmm. of the smoking. Cause in the United States it's smoking's declined. Yeah. And he said to me, we don't put the shit in our cigarettes like you put. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, okay. And so I started paying attention that too. what I put in my body, you know, um, we have a lot of problems in the U S of what we put in our food. And so just be a little more proactive with taking care of yourself. And, you know, we have screenings for a reason and everyone should be getting them. Well, there you go, Mandy. Thanks very much. And you're going to beat this. Yep. And we're going to get through it. And to all of you listeners, thank you for listening. And we will have another one, another chat later. See you.